0: welcome to the rsa events podcast the home of world changing ideas and debate
1: hello everybody um, sorry we're a few minutes late a few technical issues we're good to go now um, hi um, i'm andrea kershaw um, i'm director of house of creativity and also have the privilege to be a trustee of the rsa Um, it's my great pleasure to welcome you all here tonight thank you for all coming Um, a few practicalities can we make sure that our phones are on silent tom can you dig into my handbag mine isn't (laughs) 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 i've just remembered (laughs) thank you very much (laughs) Um, also just to let you know that we're live streaming the event so welcome to everybody's watching, and if you want to join in the conversation on Twitter, the uh, hashtag is RSA, RDI. Um, just to share a little bit about the RSA and what we've been up to, and then the lovely Tom's gonna come over and take over with the RDIs. Um, so tonight's event is a celebration of positive impact of design, and the influential practitioners who are leaders in their field. Design is at the core of the RSA's charitable object, and the last past year has marked another milestone of our work. So I just want to share a little bit about what we've been doing as an organisation. Um, in May 2022, with Andy Haldane joining the RSA as the new CEO, uh, we launched the new vision, mission and programme for the RSA and designed at, at its very heart of it. Our new vision is a world that is resilient, rebalanced and regenerative where everyone can achieve their full potential. And our mission is to enable people, place and planet to flourish hand in hand and for the long term. Our Design for Life programme recognises the role that we all play as agents of change across our life course and across the system, from early years to young people, to entrepreneurs, to those of us working from place and within organisations and across the wider system. The RSA's Design for Life Programme is committed to growing the agency, capabilities, ideas and connections of all change makers. To design in ways that are more conducive to life, that being human life and life of all living things. And this is what we mean by Design for Life. It's all very exciting. And we need to and (coughs) do accept and acknowledge that design over the last hundred years And more has not always supported people places and planets to flourish in some cases we have tried to do less bad but we're now in an era where design should only do more good and we're excited to be championing this new era of design for life at the RSA and of course tonight we inaugurate five new Royal designers of industry and four new honorary designers of industry Um, All are already demonstrating what this new era for design could start to look like, and should start to look like. Established in 1936, the title RDI signifies the important contribution of design in manufacturing and industry. RDI remains the highest accolade for designers in the UK, and today is awarded to those who have demonstrated sustained designed excellence and a significant benefit to society and the environment. The Royal Designers contribute to the RSA in numerous ways, sharing their skills and experience with the organisation, its staff and networks, in particular supporting design education through the RSA Student Design Awards and Pupil Design Awards schemes. In addition to celebrating the RDI's achievements tonight, it's really important that we acknowledge the generation of designers committed to using their skills to tackle the challenges of today, so we're really delighted to have some of this year's talented RSA design award winners here this evening the RSA student design awards is an open innovation challenge for students similarly the pupil design awards ask secondary school pupils to respond to contemporary, um, contemporary social problems through design <coughs> each year the RSA works closely with a range of partners from different sectors including Spotify, Kew Gardens, Centre for Sustainable Energy and Network Rail. And last year, we posed 12 design briefs to students and pupils, challenging emerging change makers to address complex problems through design thinking. We work with schools, colleges, universities across the UK and around the world to embed the RSA briefs into their curricula. Many who pass through our design awards go on to use their skills to transform the world that we live in. And indeed, some have have had the honour of becoming royal designers for industry themselves, which is pretty cool. Uh, Now in its 99th year, this is an opportune moment for the RSA Design Awards. As we approach the 100th anniversary, (coughs) we're using this last year, before the centenary, to look both backwards and forwards. We'll be looking back to the incredible achievements over the last 100 years, drawing together our community of past winners, judges and partners to celebrate the longest-running design competition in the world. This will also mark the celebration of the lasting heritage of the RSA since its inception over 270 years ago, with challenge prizes known at the time as premiums, bringing people and ideas together to create a better world. Looking forward, we'll be reimagining with our wider community of designers, changemakers, fellows and partners, what the next 100 years of design awards at the RSA should look like and should achieve for young people students and emerging entrepreneurs we'll be asking how the rsa's design for life awards might collectively nurture inspire and provoke the next generation to release their potential towards a resilient rebalanced and regenerative world we'll be inviting you all to share your reflections and ideas to this very question in the drinks reception to follow in the benjamin franklin room tonight i'm really pleased that we've got three of our recent winners here with us from the student and pupil design awards and it's my great pleasure to share their work with you joshua dale won a student design award for the steel appeal brief it asks how might we apply circular economy principles to increase and encourage the reuse of steel from decommissioned oil platforms joshua is an ma student a design student at the University of Lincoln. His project, Scottish Kelp, proposed the conversion of these decommissioned oil rigs into large-scale, sustainable kelp farms and processing units, reusing the underwater structures as well as the jackets in land. The judges were impressed by the scale of ambition of Joshua's idea, which had such high level of material reuse. They felt that he had demonstrated a wide range of research and praised his ability to communicate a complicated concept and bring key elements to life. Congratulations, Joshua. Mara. Oh, have a clap. Thank <laughs> <laughs> you. <laughs> Mara Ungerium won a Student Design Award for the Brief Collective Imagination. This brief asks students to think about how to build the capacity and capability of local communities to collectively imagine the future they desire. Mara is a Design for Art Direction student at the University of Arts London. She developed Roma Futurism Museum. It's a digital interactive space that combines virtual reality, live theatre, and experimental installations to promote an intersectional, intersectional collective vision for the future of very many people. The panel was moved by the passionate way Mara discussed the issues and challenges that inspired her project. They highlighted her impressive understanding of the complexities of intersectionality and how digital space can be used as a site of memory and imagination. Well done Mara. Thank <laughs> And finally, Lily is a Pupil Design Award winner. She expertly responded to the Food for Thought brief. It asks, how might we rethink our current food system to design out waste? Lily, a a year 12 pupil at the time of submission, studies design and technology specialising in product design. Her Food Waste Pop-Up Book focused on educating children on the importance of food sustainability through a recyclable pop-up book. The book is made from seeded paper which can be torn out and planted for children to start growing their own food which is such a great idea (laughs) Um, the judges felt lily's project was unexpected innovative and considered wider issues connected to food waste since winning lily's project has been featured in the government's public policy design blog so that's all of the rsa design winners to be upstanding Where are you? (laughs) Well done, Guy. A few years, you could be on the front row. (laughs) These talented young designers will be showcasing their winning projects in the Benjamin Franklin Room after this event. I'd really encourage everyone to speak with them about their work, what they gained, and, and join us in thinking about what the next 100 years of the RSA Design for Life Awards could look like. But back to our Rural Designers for Industry, and following the RDI Awards presentations coming up, we'll welcome this year's distinguished speaker, Dame <laughs> Joe De Silva, RDI, to give the 2022 RDI address. Jo is Global Director of Sustainable Development at Arup, Leading business transformation in response to the climate, biodiversity, and equity crises. Now it's our pleasure to hand over to the very lovely Master of the Royal Designers, Tom Lloyd. Uh, Tom will read the citations for the new members and will invite them to receive their diplomas. Tom.
2: Thank you Kirsch. Good evening, it is my privilege and pleasure to be here with you all this evening to welcome new Royal Designers and honorary Royal Designers into the faculty. As is customary, we would like to start by taking a moment to say goodbye to fellow Royal Designers who we have lost in the last 12 months. Please honor them, their amazing work and their contribution to design. Before we start with the citations, I wanted to share a few words about the work of the Faculty of Royal Designers. Following the privations placed on all of us during the pandemic, in the last year, the faculty has been more able to actively develop its partnerships across the design diaspora. As a means of exploring the potential for design to respond positively to the climate emergency and accelerating social inequality, we have been collaborating with the Royal Commission for the exhibition of 1851, exploring the intersection of design and science. The Design Age Institute at the Royal College of Art in relation to design and ageing. Make at Somerset House, exploring the intersection of design and entrepreneurship. And with the campaigning organisation, Design Can, in the service of equality, diversity and inclusion in the design industry. A year ago, I talked a little bit about the vocabulary of design and how it is shifting alongside our changing world. The process continues. Entanglement, uncertainty, radical improvisation, cognitive diversity, regenerative futures. Language is a beautiful tool in exploring ideas, needs and methodologies of change. And the practices of this year's new royal designers is a further testimony to this. Alongside more established territories of costume design, design for new media and architecture, new practices are today being celebrated, including speculative and regenerative design, design research and circular design. Across such diversity of thinking, these practices share a mindset at the intersection of curiosity and observation. Problem solving and provocation, analysis and insight, science and craft. And there can be no doubt that design has the tools to contribute positively to a future planet that is healthy and thriving. So, to our new Royal Designers for Industry. As Kirsch, Kirsch has already mentioned, the title Royal Designer for Industry, or RDI, is awarded annually to the, uh, by the RSA to UK designers of all disciplines who have demonstrated sustained design excellence and a significant benefit to society and the environment. So welcome, new RDIs. I will read out a brief citation and then invite you individually onto the stage following that citation to collect your award. Jenny Bevan, RDI, for Innovation in Costume Design. Jenny Bevan was born and brought up in London. Her parents, Peter Bevan and Molly Panther, were both classical musicians. There was no television, and a creative alternative environment was probably the start of her career. Jenny studied theatre design at the Central School of Art and Design with Ralph Coltie, RDI, and always thought her future was in set design. However, Nick Young, a childhood friend, introduced her to Ishmael Merchant and James Ivory as a costume rather than set designer. Jenny is a costume designer in the purest sense. She is curiously anti-fashion, but deeply committed to designing clothes that augment the character and help tell the story. She reads the script over and over again until she learns it off by heart and only then gets fully inside the characters. She describes herself as, I'm a storyteller with clothes, fashion is incidental. Bevan takes up challenges with immense insight and epic imagination, boldly bringing the period to life. Cruella, for example, is set in the 70s, at the time Jenny was leaving college and starting to work on Merchant Ivory films. Her genius is breathtaking, with inspired visual nods to Vivian Westwood, Alexander McQueen, David Bowie and even Marie Antoinette. Bevan has designed th- costumes for 49 films, 16 TV productions and 13 theatre productions. She has been nominated for Academy Awards an amazing eleven times, winning three Oscars, three BAFTAs, and two Primetime Emmys, and was appointed the OBE in 2017 for services to drama production. Jenny, many congratulations and welcome to the faculty. Please. Sebastian Cox, RDI, for Innovation in Regenerative Design. Sebastian Cox is a regenerative designer, maker and environmental campaigner. He designs and makes with a nature-first perspective for a better future in a forward-thinking, zero-waste workshop and studio in London. His products use only UK-harvested woods, including from his own wood in Kent, which is coppiced to provide net positive raw materials. Although still in his late 30s, with his particular focus on nature-first design principles, Sebastian has become a leading figure in the UK design world and, and a recognised advocate for a net-zero future. Sebastian has developed a design style which brings the softness of nature into modern spaces. In, focus on the ha- in focusing on the habitats where materials come from and the traditional crafts used to manipulate them, He has developed a breadth of products which span details and forms delivered from green wood working techniques, including weaving, steaming and cleaving, and to modern digital fabrication. Sebastian has consistently led the conversation around using materials sensitively, educating his clients and fellow designers alike on woodland management and solid timber use. The design of his products clearly communicate the origins of the materials and the habitats they are derived from and in doing so, act as vectors of education around subjects of biodiversity and climate breakdown. He's a passionate and vocal campaigner on the power of wood-based products to support our transition to a regenerative future. He believes that what we harvest, make and buy can be part of the solutions to our biodiversity and climate crisis. If we ask, what resources does nature want to give us? Sebastian. Many congratulations and welcome to the faculty. Jane and John Arden RDI for innovation in speculative design founded by Anna Jane and John Arden in 2009 Superflux is a boundary defying design and experiential futures company as well as a research and art practice from climate change to algorithmic autonomy future of work to more than human politics their work aims to confront diverse audiences With the complex and deeply interconnected nature of the challenges we face today they invite clients collaborators communities and wider participants to remain open to multiple possibilities and to navigate precarity with active hope using design to imagine hypothetical worlds as a critical strategy for business whilst expanding public imagination was not prevalent 13 years ago In this space of possibility, Superflux willed itself into existence, becoming one of the first studios to pioneer the practice of speculative design, critical foresight, design fiction, and experiential futures in business. Passing uncertainties, weak signals, and wide-ranging trends, they work with clients to imagine and build future worlds they could experience in the present moment. Such visceral engagement with multiple possibilities not only opens up undiscovered opportunities and helps identify blind spots. More significantly, such imagination-led futures futures work enables strategic, informed, and long-term decision-making. Superflux's design practice remains prescient and innovative because of their active, self-initiated, experimental research and art lab. A space where Annab and John, with colleagues, have an opportunity to test new ideas and themes. Sometimes these experiments find, experiments find home in client projects, other times they take the form of cautionary tales, superfictions, future archaeologies, and immersive simulations, which have been exhibited worldwide. Annab and John, many congratulations and welcome to the faculty. John Warwicker, RDI, for Innovation in New Media Design. John Warwicker is a polymath designer and artist working across media performance, commerce and art practice, although none of this work acknowledges those boundaries. John attended Birmingham Polytechnic in the 70s and early 80s, researching the graphic potential and limitations of electronic interactive media. During this time, he developed his interest in blurring, fusing, colliding, or montaging both language and media, thought into form, by means of language, placed into the world in any medium or media for any length of time. During the 1980s, John designed for the record industry, notably at Da Gama. In 1983, he joined the band Freur, then meeting band members Carl Hyde and Rick Smith, with whom, and others, he co-founded the multidisciplinary collective, Tomato. John's work is progressive, exploratory and innovative. He has never stood still. He is curious and displays enormous talent in response to that curiosity. His work in media has been valued by corporations, museums, public space, performance, print, architecture and TV for its originality, provocation and playfulness. Tomato, the design group that he founded, has been globally influential and a design leader for over 20 years, and John has been instrumental in their success. Besides being an active member of Tomato, John is professor of the University of Melbourne in graphic design, visiting professor at Tokyo Zokai University, and Kuosawa Design School, Tokyo. Through his teaching consultancies, advisory roles, and public speaking, he continues to instill positive social change, enabling others to improve their quality of life, education and learning. John, who lives in Melbourne, cannot be with us today, but John Walters, editor of iMagazine, is here to receive John's award on his behalf. John, welcome to the stage. citations I will now read the citations for the honorary Royal designers for industry 2022 this title is awarded annually by the RSA to non-UK designers from all disciplines who have demonstrated sustained design excellence and a significant benefit to society and the environment Stefan Diaz honorary RDI for innovation in product design Stefan Diaz is a Munich-based industrial designer who creates products for the circular economy since founding his studio, Dia's Office, in 2002, Stefan has been at the forefront of transforming the ways in which contemporary products are developed and manufactured. The studio works across typologies such as furniture, lighting, and accessories, bringing together technical expertise, creative experimentation, and a rigorous commitment to sustainability. Stefan grew up in a household of fourth-generation carpenters and brings a hands-on experimental approach to the development of his designs. His deeply analytical way of working often sees him not accepting the way things are made, and he designs the process of manufacture to achieve his aims. He is highly committed to sustainability and a circular economy, and believes that a good product offers a tangible advantage to the user, something they can become attached to and want to preserve. He has written that existing structures and recourses need to be rethought and transferred in such a way that they quickly become functioning, sustainable solutions. In this context, the transition to a circular economy is one of the most important challenges of our time. Stefan's studio is located in a former joinery in the centre of Munich, which was transformed in 2008 to create an atelier and workshop for hands-on experimentation. Today, the joinery is not only home to the studio, but also provides working spaces for a collective of practitioners drawn from across the creative industries. This spirit of cross-pollination is characteristic of Diaz's work. Stefan has been head of industrial design program at the University of Applied Arts of Vienna since 2018. Stefan, many congratulations and welcome to the faculty. Andrea Trimarchi and Simone Farrison, honorary RDI, for innovation in design research. Former Phantasma, founded by Andrea Trimarchi and Simone Farrison in 2009, is a research-based design studio investigating the ecological, historical, political and social forces shaping the discipline of design today. From the outset, Andrea and Simone have championed the need for value-laden advocacy merged with holistic design thinking. Their aim is to facilitate a deeper understanding of both our natural and built environments and to propose transformative interventions through design and its material, technical, social and discursive possibilities. Working from their studios in Milan and Rotterdam, the practice embraces a broad spectrum of typologies and methods from product design through spatial design, strategic planning and design consultancy. Whether designing to a client's brief or developing self-initiated projects, the studio applies the same rigorous attention to context, process and detail. As a result, Forma Phantasma's entire portfolio is characterized by a coherent visual language and meticulously researched outcomes. For Forma Phantasma, this cross flow of knowledge and experience taken from both their commercial contracts and their more autonomous projects, has benefited and formed the respective other. It has also given them a unique perspective of the design industry, allowing them to acknowledge the legacy of industrial production as the fundamental source for the designer's expertise and agency in contemporary society, while also addressing its historic contribution to environmental instability. Rimaki and Farasa are co-leaders of the Geodesign department at the Design Academy Eindhoven where they explore the social, economic, territorial and geopolitical forces shaping design today. Andrea and Simone, many congratulations and welcome to the faculty. Diabedo Francis Kerry, honorary RDI, for innovation in architecture. Diabedo Francis Kerry is an internationally renowned bikinabe architect and is recognized for his pioneering approach to design and sustainable modes of construction. His vocation to become an architect comes from a personal commitment to serve the communities he grew up in and a belief in the transformative potential of beauty. In 2004, his very first building, the Gando Primary School, which he designed, raised funds for, and realized in collaboration with the residents of his hometown while still a student at the Technical University in Berlin, was awarded the prestigious Aga Khan Award for Architecture, garnering him critical <coughs> acclaim from the outset of his career. In 2005, he founded his architectural practice, Kerry Architecture, as well as the Kerry Foundation, a non profit organization that pursues projects in Gando. Since then, Kerry has gone on to become one of the world's most distinguished contemporary architects, with a vision that is at once utopian and pragmatic. Inspired by the particularities of each project's locality and its social tapestry, he and his team have expanded beyond his native Burkina Faso, to work internationally from his studio in Berlin, largely on educational, civic and public buildings. His simple style fits any context, and his methods involve community engagement in planning structures and in the building process. Though now he has gained international recognition, Carrier still bases his work on the same principles. Design and social commitment come together in housing and schools, as well as in civic and cultural buildings such as the Benin National Assembly and the Palace for Gathering he created for the Chicago Architecture Biennale in 2015. Collaboration with local people, artists and fellow building design professionals is a given. Diabedo is the 2022 Laureate of the Pritzker Architectural Prize. Sadly, Diabedo cannot be with us today, but has sent this message to share with us all.
3: Hello, everybody who has gathered today in London. Um, Wow, wow. To be appointed as honorary Royal Designer of Industry, it's a great honor to me. It is humbling to receive this recognition from England, from London. Um, You know, I would have loved to be with you today to celebrate and to receive this honor in person, but I had to go to Burkina Faso to check with my team so I can be there. That's why I want to say thank you to everyone who has contributed, you know, who has nominated or whatever organized to help me receive this honor. Big, big thanks to all of you. Special thanks to Tom Lord and his team, you know, for all of these great things. I don't want to end without congratulating my fellow recipient. Um, so to be singing together and be awarded is a great day for all of us. But I also want to thank uh, and congratulate the student who has been also recognized through this great Great honor So enjoy your great day. Thank you again, and then I hope to see you soon in person. You know, bye bye.
2: Uh, Charlie Payton RDI will take the stage to receive the award on Dearbaido's behalf. was beautiful, wasn't it? Each year, the faculty has this beautiful challenge of discussing, proposing, thinking and electing new members of the faculty. The highest accolade for designers in this country and one that shines a light on the power of design in all its forms. This year is no exception. Congratulations again to all of you. Another of my quick duties tonight is to introduce the master-elect of the Faculty of Royal Designers, who will succeed me as master in November 2023. I'm delighted to announce that Charlie Payton, RDI, has agreed to take on this role. Charlie's practice is as close as it can be to fulfilling the potential of design in solving our planetary scale challenges. Over 20 years, Charlie has been developing a concept called the seawater greenhouse, a unique greenhouse hybrid which uses seawater in hot, arid climates to cool and humidify greenhouses, leading to massive reductions in the need for fresh water. The project is a perfect example of the meeting point between design, thinking, science and engineering. Charlie, we're delighted that you've agreed to take on the role of master and look forward to working with you in the next period. It is now my great pleasure to welcome Dame Jo de Silva RDI, Global Director of Sustainable Development at Arabs, to the stage to give this year's address. Jo.
0: Good evening, everyone. Um, I felt very humbled last year when I was a ma- MAID uh, member of this very illustrious group of people. Uh, there are RDI fellows who have been my heroes or heroines um, that whose career I followed and I feel exactly the same watching uh, the amazing uh, people who have joined uh, today. Um, and so first I'd like to begin saying congratulations um, to everyone. Um, it's really fantastic and it's awesome to look at your work. Um, I have a passion for design. I have done so since I was fairly young, but I also have immense compassion for the less well-off in the world, uh, the more vulnerable, the more marginalised, and concern about failure, um, and not how we make a more beautiful world, but how we improve quality of life. And through improving quality of life, I've come to a point where so much of my work has been actually about alleviating suffering. I believe passionately in the role that design plays. Um, And that's why um, this evening I'm going to talk about resilient by design. Our capacity to survive, adapt and flourish relies on us designing a future that is concurrently sustainable and resilient. Whereas sustainability is accepted as a key tenet of good design, resilient design is still in its infancy infancy and seeking greater understanding and definition. I certainly am not going to provide any answers tonight, but I want to explore some of the definitions of resilience and how that's interpreted in design and hopefully inspire you to make it central to what you will do. Resilience is a tricky word, but it's very academically grounded, and it describes the behaviour of a complex system when faced with stress or disruption. It's about the ability of that system to perform, to adapt, to transform, to maintain or regain its functionality when faced with shocks and stresses. I find it really helpful to just think about the resilience of what system, to watch shocks and stresses, Because resilience on it it doesn't stand alone, it always is associated with something. And systems are complex, their behaviour is defined by boundaries, relationships and dependencies that are seldom explicit and appear unpredictable. A murmuration of starlings is a very good example of a complex system, but so too is an urban park which has been designed to promote health, well-being and social interaction. Its ability to do so relies on the relationships between natural and manufactured elements, people and climate. But so too does this informal settlement, which hasn't been specifically designed for social interaction, where nature is largely absent, but nevertheless the social interaction is abundant. My point here is we can't really define systems very tightly. We can't break them down and analyze them. And that's why engineers find resilience very difficult. In both instances, imagine a s- severe storm hits. That would classify as a disruption. And the resilience of these places, their ability to continue to support the health and well being of people, to continue to promote so- social interaction, would be determined by the ability of the structures to withstand the strong winds, the community's willingness to pull together, their perception of safety, availability of funding. And skills to repair any damage. Resilience has become important because complex systems underpin every aspect of modern life – supply chains, infrastructure networks, communities and cities. Stephen Hawking said that the 21st century would be defined by complexity. He was right and he was also wrong. It is being defined by complexity, but also uncertainty, volatility, ambiguity. And we are all designing things now that will operate in a very different future environment. Are we designing for today? Are we contemplating the changes that will take place? Rather than designing for known conditions, are we prepared to contemplate the unknown? Are we thinking about tomorrow's world? This is in fact a tardigrade, which is the most resilient creature on the planet, It survived five extinctions. It can survive from minus 250 to plus 150 degrees, even if it's boiled in alcohol. Um, And this this is my (coughs) motto, my logo for resilience. When I get lost thinking about resilience, I go back to this little fellow who's half a millimetre long. Resilience, of course, is a really important part of sustainability and we're all in the process of rethinking or unpacking that word, sustainability, which we're all so familiar with and yet means so many different things to so many people. Imagine three designers. The first is an ecologist, and he argues that actually what we need to do is to restore the planet. If we can restore planetary health, everything else will fall into place. The second is a futurist, The futurist says, but we've actually only got one planet, and that's got to last forever. We need to promote regenerative design. The third is a realist. The road ahead is bumpy, and we need to ensure that we're also resilient by design. All three are right. Resilience and sustainability are complementary, and I sometimes talk about them as the DNA, um, the two strands of DNA, that will eventually get us to a regenerative future. Um, Resilience has been around for a long time, um, since the 70s, um, in the context of ecological systems. Ecologists were interested on why some systems collapsed and others didn't, uh, when they faced extreme weather events. And it's been adopted by many professions, and the thinking transferred to thinking about cities and communities. The question that I'm exploring is how can we purposefully design an environment that enables families, communities, cities to survive and thrive, whatever (coughs) happens. Another pandemic, an economic recession, an earthquake, conflict, or the impacts of climate change and nature loss. All of them are happening right now or have happened in recent years. But if you look carefully at this diagram, you'll notice that one of the arrows is going in a different direction to the rest. It's not about managing shocks and stresses that reduce. Our climate is our future, and climate change is real. And we are currently on a trajectory that is going to take us to one and a half degrees above pre-industrial levels in the next 10 to 20 years, and get to close to three degrees above pre-industrial levels by the end of the century. At COP where I was last week, the Pakistan pavilion said quite correctly, what's happening in Pakistan won't stay in Pakistan. So, resilience matters, and we need to think about the design strategies that lead to resilience. Um, The first is about strategies that prevent failure. Um, And we talk about systems being robust, being strong, like this oak tree. But, of course, flexibility is also a means to absorb stress and prevent failure. So, too, is redundancy, but redundancy clashes with, with efficiency which has been so central to so much design over the last few decades. And then these words, robust, flexible, redundant, mean different things when you're talking about different uh, design scenarios. So when I'm talking about houses, I'm talking about safe and affordable. That's what a robust solution is. But we also need to recognise that some things will fail and then what matters is how they recover. And some people talk about resilience as bouncing back. Failure can occur, but it needs to be localised or short-term. And there are qualities that design can promote. Resourcefulness, responsiveness. I got involved in the Ebola crisis in Western Africa, and a study of that revealed that actually, things could have been designed differently in terms of PPE, in terms of um, access to hospitals. Uh, There would have been many, many less deaths. And then we saw that again here in COVID, in terms of the ability of the healthcare system to absorb the huge demands as a result of COVID. In Bangladesh, the simplest thing that promotes recovery is uh, is cyclone shelters, because people have somewhere to go. And the root of that is megaphones. And the design of those megaphones has been finessed. So they're really affordable and they can be everywhere and they can tolerate all sorts of, of conditions. But where resilience gets really exciting is about transformative resilience. Um, A lot of my work has been in post-disaster situations, helping communities to build back better. And that's really about being reflective. It's the ability to learn, to think about what failed, to think about why it failed, what other stresses might occur in the future, and to enable communities to emerge stronger as a result. This gentleman is in Pakistan, and you see him working on a house, which is a form of construction called Aiji Dawari. It's an ancient vernacular form of construction that actually you find in earthquake zones all over the world, because it works. It's also very beautiful. But it was a form of construction that after the 2005 Pakistan earthquake, no one would support, particularly everyone with the money, because it didn't fit codes and practice and standards. And it took a partnership with Peshawar University to actually get to a point where houses like this could actually be built. As I said earlier, one of the challenges is actually explaining what resilience means to people. And um, one of the pieces of work that um, took me several years with very, very many people involved is thinking about the resilience of cities. How can we design cities so they're more resilient, can cope with a very, very different future? I was extremely fortunate and was given a very significant grant by the Rockefeller Foundation to explore this and we were able to carry out research in six cities globally um, by, through primary research, 16 cities through secondary research and then um, even more cities after that where we, where we tested prototypes. And what we were to, trying to do is design a tool that would enable cities to understand the ingredients that contribute to their resilience. And what was astonishing that came out of that research was 52 ingredients. And those ingredients mattered in all these cities, whether these cities were suffering from extreme events or chronic unemployment. Um, they mattered more or less, depending on the shocks and stresses that were being faced. But we came to a view um, that, that this, I- this is what mattered, this what contributed to resilience. Um, we also wanted to make sure we could communicate that And a huge amount of thought went into the design of the City Resilience um, Index Framework, which is what you're looking at. Um, Really, we wanted to convey that it was completely holistic, the qualities of resilience that I talked about earlier in the middle, because we didn't want them to get lost. Um, And this framework has now been used in about 250 cities globally. um, And there were people calling me up from places like Medellin in Latin America, saying, Joe, thank you. People still understand this. We need to be able to communicate through design some of these more complex issues what we found from our work on the cri that was what really mattered is the health and well-being of everyone and that depended on their access to basic things like food and water shelter sanitation livelihoods and health care but resilience also depends on protection and connection we've so often tried to keep nature out that we could withstand nature and some designs like the Thames barrier are really effective but we're learning to design in a different way to use nature to help protect us and the picture on the right is the Olympic Park in East London which on a good day like this promotes social cohesion but on a bad day is completely underwater and all the plants are designed to be able to be themselves resilient to survive and thrive. Within cities, we found that the glue that holds cities together is not just the budget sheet but or the police force. It's actually social cohesion. It's the cultural events, like the Notting Hill Carnivals, where people come together and create and co-design um, cultural events. We also found that resilience is very much about empowering people. And one of the things that I've learned through my journey in life is that I can't design things to reduce risk for people or to make them more resilient. I have to do it with them. And that's because risk and resilience is highly subjective. Um, and we need to design tools and ways, processes to enable much more particip- participatory process, processes um, in the design world. Uh, this diagram, I give my thanks to Melina, who's here with us, um, who helped me to, to draw <laughs> in a much more beautiful way, um, where I think we are. Um, this, is a, this is a diagram. The left-hand side of this diagram is the journey that I've come through, um, starting in a world where I learned about design at university. There were no people in what I was taught, and there was no planet, there was no environment. It was the 1980s. It was all about technology and the power of technology and what it could do for us. And, of course, what we've learned in the last 35 years is that what that's caused is environmental degradation. And where so many of us are looking is what's going to happen in the next 35 years. Um, I'm still planning to be alive in uh, 2055. Um, I'll be about the same age my dad was when he died. So that (coughs) right-hand side of this diagram is where we're going to get to in my lifetime. And that's a regenerative future. There are some stepping stones on the way, embracing the circular economy, embracing restorative design. But that road ahead is going to be bumpy. um, And that's where resilience comes in. And we have to embrace uh, that bumpiness in the journey ahead. So I wanted to end by sharing with you something that is not complete, but I hope very much that the RDI will lean into and help take forwards. What are the principles of resilience by design, if they're going to hel- help us shape this new world or transition to this new world? I start with the thought that maybe design is always needs-based, but maybe we need to think harder about whether, which needs we're addressing and whether we're addressing the needs that are really vital. What you can see on this image is Jenggu, which is a hand basin that we've designed, specifically for refugee camps um, and you know, migrant populations, to prevent the spread of disease, because people don't wash their hands. Um, and we had to make hand-washing fun. The children needed to want to do it. We wanted the women to be able to do it. And so we had an amazing team with behavioural scientists, product designers, you know, pulling all this thinking together and came up with a true innovation, which was simply, why don't we use our feet to turn on the tap? Because then our dirty hands won't spread the disease. We can't forget safety and security when we're thinking about design. This is the second layer of Maslow's Pyramid of Needs, and there are more and more people in the world who are not safe, who are not secure. These pictures are from the Rohingya refugee camps, uh, it looks like I cobbled it together with stuff that I could find in my garage. But actually, these are designed knots. This is designed bracing that turned a refugee camp, which was made out of bamboo structures that were all would have completely been flattened, the first storm that came along, into structures which people have been calling their home for the last few years. Durability is a really important part of resilience. Um, s- buildings, houses, structures, objects need to be durable if they're going to survive. And so often durability is achieved by simply making things stronger. But what I've learned is that it's actually about creating things that are beautiful, that are loved and that are maintainable. These are houses in Pakistan that we worked on are following the 2012 floods, which had followed the 2010 floods two years before, And all we were doing was working with local people to understand how those floods had affected their houses, how they could be made stronger. And I'm happy to say some of them have survived the terrible floods that have happened over the last few months. Local ownership is really important. Uh, Using local materials, but also unlocking the capacity of people to build. So often, when I've traveled around the world, I found people in their 60s, their 70s, and 80s with amazing skills that are about to disappear because we replaced everything with steel and concrete or plastic. Um, this is um, a school in Ghana, which the whole thing is built out of local materials. And the, 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 you know, the shutters are made out of bamboo, the frame is made out of timber. We used coconut husks to create the roof, the, um, the insulation. In the roof, both acoustically to prevent the rain drumming and thermally because the, the, the temperatures change so much, the diurnal temperature range is, is so extreme. These were uh, materials that weren't being used by local people. We looked for what materials were available and then thought creatively about how we can upskill the local population uh, to, to, to do that. That school. Um, is still there, it still looks brand new. Whereas almost every other school that I've seen in Africa, um, as soon as something is broken, it just um, gets abandoned. Um, So creating ownership, I think, needs to really become a key part of design. We have made life very complicated. Um, I love looking at really good design because it's elegant, It's, it's got a simplistic beauty about it. And I felt that when I saw this woman in a slum in Dhaka, in Bangladesh. I'd been asked to go and help this community, think about how they could deal with the floodwaters that came every year. And we'd come up with all sorts of clever designs for all sorts of raised walkways and and things um, to enable them to to move um, when when it flooded. And then I came round the corner one day and there was this lady standing there looking at me as though to say, why are you making it so complicated? Um, and similarly, you know, when you look at a big scale at cities, and you look at the way we've gone about flood defence systems for cities, they so often involve huge amounts of pumping of water from A to B. But in fact, we can achieve the same thing with passive systems. And this is a, a picture of water squares in Rotterdam, which have now been introduced into Surat in India. And this is simply creating public spaces that are, that are um, depressed so that um, when, when the floods come, uh, th- it, it can store the water. And really, this thinking has come about by just actually thinking much more about the future, thinking about much more broadly about the different conditions um, that are experienced. And nature is becoming um, recognised for the amazing services that it can provide us. Nature plays such a key role in dealing with too much and too little water. Features like this, swales, will slow down water. The nature absorbs water. The lakes store water. And it's a big shift for many of us to get to the point where we've grown up in a world where we were trained as designers to design in steel, in concrete, in plastic, in man-made materials and actually to embrace nature as a key stakeholder in everything we do, but also as part of the solution, um, and putting nature first. I talked earlier about social cohesion, and social cohesion isn't, doesn't occur by accident. Some of the work that I've done has been looking about what brings people together, and work that I was doing in India you know, identified the fact that it's actually public spaces, places where people can meet and greet, and forge that identity that provides the glue in society that's so important because it enables people to act collectively under stress. And finally, my most recent work on resilience has been about children. A year ago at COP26, we convened a rather eclectic group of people to explore the issue of nature-based play in cities. And our starting point for that agenda was simply thinking about nature. We realised quite quickly that if we could create nature-based play zones in cities, that would also help the climate. There would be areas of shade, there would be areas that would attenuate water. But what I didn't realise or bargain for was the talk by an academic who explained so coherently how children's brains develop differently when they play in nature, and the qualities that make us as adults resilient, our willingness to be curious, to reflect, our willingness to pick ourselves up from adversity and carry on; our willingness, our willingness to experiment and explore. These are all characteristics or qualities that are hardwired into us if we play in nature, but actually our brains evolve in a very different way if we go and do the same thing on the slide or the climbing frame in the municipal playground. And so I've come to a view that actually looking forwards when we're thinking about resilience by design, we actually need to be thinking not just about the people who are on our planet now, but the future generations. Because one thing I'm absolutely sure, unless we can create resilience through design in individuals, and particularly in the children, we're not going to be be able to navigate those bumps on the road ahead. Thank you.
1: thanks so much Joe Dame Joe. <laughs> <laughs> um, to wrap up I spent I was very privileged and I got to spend many happy years working for a design firm IDEO and in between all our work quite often when we could do is come up for air and the questions that we were asking ourselves is where does design go next how can design add value as the world changes I think it's very clear from everything we've heard tonight that we absolutely have our mandate about where to go next. At the very minimum, it is about doing less bad. Minimum. But ultimately, we want to shift towards replenishment. We need to shift towards regenerative design. As Joe highlights, we need to build resilience into our work and how we work with people. So there's much work to be done. Um, I want to thank everybody. The serum is complete. Um, I'd like to thank Joshua, Mara and Lily for joining us. I know some of you have travelled a number of miles to be here, so thank you. Please do go and see their work, the Benjamin Franklin Room, and have a chat with them. Um, I'd like to thank Tom for doing a splendid job. <laughs> um, big thanks to Joe. I know you've just come back from COP, and so you've flown in and attended here tonight. Really grateful and sharing your thinking on resilience in de- in design, and finally, another massive congrats to all our new RDI's and honorary RDI's. Massive congratulations! <laughs> <laughs> As always with these events, it's taken quite a big crew to get us going. Um, so. Please, instead of taking a drink from them, why don't we give them a drink downstairs? (laughs) Um, Drinkies now for everybody, except unfortunately the new RDIs can't have drinkies just yet because we need you to stay behind for photographs. So for everybody else, you go and tuck in. (laughs) Um, It's heading downstairs under this room, the Benjamin Franklin room, so you head off down there. Drink is until eight and then dins at eight o'clock. So I'm talking very parochially, drinkies and dins in my world. <laughs> drinkies and dins. And um, if the RDIs would stay back for a few minutes, that would be great, the new RDIs. Thanks, everybody. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, head to our YouTube channel for inspiring talks, interviews and animations.